0: hi guys welcome to the revive stronger podcast i'm your host as always steve hall and today we have Menno henselmans and mike Isratel on the podcast unfortunately eric hopefully might turn up a bit later um, and kind of put his input but we are doing individualization part two individualization part one I really enjoyed personally and I know you guys will have enjoyed it as well but there are a few elements that I think would be worth covering and I know Mike particularly wanted to cover as well so without further ado I'll let Mike start off with volume landmarks and individualizing those and then let Menno kind of respond.
1: Yeah thanks for having us on again Steve Um, I will tolerate my just revulsion and hatred of Meadow for another hour for you. Um, So um, I think that the two most important landmarks to talk about, there's others, uh, specifically maintenance volume is the other that I won't talk about much here, I don't think, Um, though we can. I think it's just important to hit the two big ones, minimum effective volume and maximum recoverable volume. And I think uh, this is especially really pertinent uh, based on the recent literature re- inclusions we've seen, like the uh, recently released 45 sets per week quad study, um, and you know the the recent resurgence of uh, the debate about exactly how much more hypertrophy does additional volume give you, so on and so forth. Because what we tend to see is, you know, they'll they'll train 40 undergraduates at a university in a particular style, usually untrained or trained, which means they have a year of training experience, which is comical. And they'll train all of them with either one or two volumes, uh, maybe three sometimes. And then they'll be like, you know, here's kind of what's going on. And people seem to be interested in taking those volumes and just sort of copying them verbatim to their routines. Um, The thing is, is uh, something that I think James Krieger likes to point out a lot is that you know those are averages, and if you zoom in onto what the people in the study, the results each individual got, there's always a normal distribution about each volume, right? So there's like almost always a guy in the five set per week group that grows more double the muscle of at least one guy in the 15 per week uh, set group. Like that's always going to happen. So uh, you zoom in on the individual level, and then because this is a talk about individualization. We have to understand the volume landmarks. They're super easy to get. Minimum effective volume is the least amount of volume you can do is meaningfully progress, get bigger. Um, and then the maximum recoverable is the most you can recover with regularly. So training over that is just simply some combination of unproductive and impossible. And you just gotta, I, 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 it's beyond the scope of this debate to say whether you should move from one to the other over a mesocycle. I think that's a fine idea, but it's not mandatory. You can just stay in the middle and move intensity. I think that's totally fine. Basically, like where that middle is for you, it really does depend on individual differences. And where someone's middle is, where their ranges are, could, could be non overlapping. Like there's some people who have a minimum effective volume of five sets per week and a maximum recoverable of 15. Some other people will have a maximum recoverable of 16, or sorry, a minimum effective of 16, and then a maximum recoverable of 40. So if they were training partners and they did the same workout, one person would get fucked one way or the other, right? Either one guy just have no gains or the other guy's just chronically overreach, deload, overreach, deload, overreach, deload. So I think my sort of uh, last thing I'll say before I hand it off to Menno is find, do some, some semblance. You don't have to go through the formal process of finding your volume landmarks. Just start training. I would recommend doing MEV first, start training just not much and see if you still make progress. Cause if you do fuck, that's awesome. Right. You just found the golden ticket. And if you, you know, i making great progress. You feel like you're barely even lifting. Do a bit more, do a bit more, do a bit more. And sort of over the months and maybe even longer, push up your volume uh, to a place where you kind of feel like, okay, this is unsustainable sort of MRV ish. And then you kind of have an understanding of where your ranges are and it is per muscle group. Um, and then, you know, and then you don't have to fucking do any kind of idiocy. Like if someone invited me, I know my MRV for back as like r- roughly 16 to 18 compound sets, you know, per week. but someone's like, Hey, you want to do this workout? Just 30 sets for back. I would just outright be like, no, that's fucking stupid for me. Right. Or if someone's like, Hey, you're getting great growth doing five sets per week for back. I'd just be like, yeah, this, this is false. Right. So if you find your own landmarks, you can spare all of the bullshit and of cookie cutter programs, uh, and, and really just. Give yourself the best advantage and save yourself from a lot of injury and, and unfortunate things down the road
0: brilliant and i guess yeah Menno, have you seen very similar things in regards to volume landmarks where they're quite different for different individuals and kind of there you know, are people off the bell curve of that average
2: definitely um also gender differences you know some differences are systemic like uh i think in the last uh, podcast we also talked about women generally having like a couple sets at least uh higher volume tolerance than men Uh, but some are just they're not random but we cannot observe them so they seem random to us and that they're just you know how many satellite cells someone has Uh, we have no idea so um, unless you've done a biopsy in every muscle you have then you don't know and you just have to experiment to find out and i think the the two most uh, pertinent studies on this I'm not sure if we covered them last time. or the the study and Coaglu uh, at all? And they basically found uh, the same thing. Koglu et all found that uh, both how many reps per set you tolerate best and the set volume depend on your ACE genotype, uh, which is it correlates a lot with um, um, how many fast twitch muscle fibers you have. So if you're, um, they found roughly because it was a bit limited by statistical power, but there was a strong trend that if you have more like um, uh, sprinter-type uh, genes, then you didn't really benefit from the increase uh, in sets, uh, but you did benefit a lot from higher intensities, whereas if you had more the endurance uh, genes, then you did benefit from extra sets, and actually uh, they seem to respond better to the higher amounts of reps per set. Um, so it's it's both volume and maybe even, you know, how many reps per do if your you're better students work more endurance or strength. And the uh, Bevan study was in rugby players, and that's that's one of the my favorite studies of all time, probably. And that they put people. Uh, they first did a test workout, which was like traditional power workout, three sets of five at seventy percent or something like that. Uh, strength workout, which was like three sets of five at eighty-five percent, and hypertrophy workout, which was like four sets of ten at seventy percent, something along that. I don't know the exact details, but uh, they first did a test workout. And then, interestingly, tested their salivary testosterone response to see uh, which workout they had the highest amount of uh, testosterone production to, and the lowest. So the people that had the uh, they then divided the people, the rugby players, into their uh, the workout that they responded the best to or the worst, and then they crossed them over, so they crossed over the design to the other one, and they found that when you put people on the the best workout, which actually varied a lot per individual. Uh, most people respond the best to the hypertrophy workouts. Um, they gain more mass and more strength. They didn't measure muscle mass, unfortunately, but just body mass and uh, strength. And when they put them on the worst workout, most of them just maintained or some even progressed. And wow. if you look at the uh, chart of where people respond best, it's actually pretty amazing in that, you know, most people respond the best to the hypertrophy and the strength workouts. But some people actually respond the best to the power workouts or the endurance workouts. And they also gain more strength and, you know, based on body mass at least, more muscle with the power or the endurance workouts than the strength for the hypertrophy workouts. And that's just crazy, which, I mean, I've, I've never seen anyone that responded well in terms of hypertrophy to power work, there's just never. so. Uh, I think, I'm not sure if there's really anything there other than maybe that these people just have a very, very low volume tolerance. And they were probably doing other work on top of that. I think they were in season, not quite sure. But um, um, I think it's more volume tolerance. So, you know, based on the study, I wouldn't put anyone on a power workout um, um, other than the, the super, super odd pre-genetic outlier, I don't think that will work for anyone, but it's just crazy to see uh, how big the inter-individual
0: variability can be, even in scientific research. Brilliant. And when we're thinking about these elements and we're talking about kind of minimum effective volume, that's probably a good place to start, assess your recovery and how your performance is going, and maybe move forward from there rather than starting with too much. I think something that I think would be brilliant for you guys to cover is there's no doubt lots of people who are doing far too much and they're kind of worried to scale back. Um, I don't know if one of you would particularly like to cover this scenario in which someone is doing lots and lots of volume and it's not productive. It's probably over their MRV and they're actually doing lots of junk volume.
1: I mean, I can start with that if you'd
0: like. Uh, The number one fear I've heard reported by
1: those folks is I feel like if I scale back, I'll lose muscle. So I'm going to address that from a couple of perspectives. First of all, if you're overworking and you reduce the volume of work, within a week, your like glycogen will reload if you change nothing and you'll feel the biggest you've ever been. Second of all, your fatigue will fall off and you'll be the strongest you've ever been. So within several weeks, it's you're going to just feel unbelievable. Secondly, we know quite well from converging lines of evidence that unless you are a rank beginner and then for sure, you shouldn't be doing 30 sets per week or whatever, um, maintenance volume is almost always and everywhere much lower than maximum recoverable volume. Something like, man, a third is what I've seen with most the people that I've worked with. Um, and that's charitable. So, you know, if your MRV is 18 sets per week, your maintenance volume might be six sets per week, especially if you modulate intensity appropriately. So when people say, I'm going to lose mass if I cut my volume, motherfucker, you're going to have to cut your volume to less than a third no one's saying that we're saying maybe i don't know meta what do you think cut it by half and see where it goes almost certainly you won't bush go below your maintenance volume and uh here's another just last final thought from the from the 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 great wisdom of greg knuckles and all of his uh sort of summaries regaining previously gained musculature is profoundly easy so if we really fuck you up You can just go back to these retarded volumes, and all of a sudden, you're huge again. So it's just kind of like a training break. The best athletes in the world, Eastern Europeans, Chinese, so on and so forth, take months per year off or in low-volume training phases and come back to win the Olympics. So this idea that you're going to, like, go from 20 sets a week down to, like, Fifteen and like you look in the mirror and all of a sudden you're like falling off. The, your gaunt face—you look like a fucking cancer patient—is utter, total reverse logic nonsense. Mano,
2: definitely. I think uh,
1: especially for people that are
2: um, doing that much volume, and I think a lot of people you're talking about like um, people are probably prone to obsession in terms of uh, how badly they want to train, and you know if they're going to miss a workout, it's the end of the world. Uh, the risk of overtraining and uh, losing muscle simply because you're exceeding your recovery capacity and you're breaking down more muscle than you're, you can rebuild is probably actually greater than the risk of losing muscle when you're decreasing the volume. Especially because these people also often don't really do light training. So even if they're only doing a couple sets, that it's probably only a matter of gaining less. If your uh, maintenance, like a third is indeed, as you said, charitable, I think, in my experience, maintenance is two, two full-body workouts per week. That, that suffices for, for most people, I think. And three is definitely already on a point where you can gain. So I think for many people, maintenance is, is extremely easy. And uh, the risk of not gaining at all that, uh, or losing muscle mass only happens if you take um, complete, uh, time off completely from workouts,
0: from working out. Perfect. And I think, yeah. oh, sorry, Mike.
1: Sorry, real quick. Mano touched on something, and it's, it, I love that he always brings the it's a very accusatory psychology into this, which I think is <laughs> awesome and hilarious and very true. Um, um, uh, obsessive is an interesting term to use. I think some people need exercise for a sort of catharsis, like they need it to sublimate other shit. <laughs> And it's gotta go somewhere. And if they don't train a lot and beat the shit out of themselves, they don't feel normal. And I say that because I'm one of those people. I just happen to add, you know, jujitsu as a hobby to fill that void in my life, but I can totally sympathize with it. But I think it's important for folks like that, the intelligent ones anyway, because most of the folks are, you know, even wanna listen to this kind of thing are very smart, to back up and be like, okay, am I really rationally thinking there's an expectation of muscle loss or are my demons just being like, don't stop, don't stop. You guys know what I mean? Like it's clearly the latter. And if you are introspective and then you're like, well, I'm just being obsessive, you know?
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, for me, um, so for those that don't know I'm a digital nomad, which means I pretty much, I mean, I live in a different country pretty much on a monthly basis and it's only in the last year or so that I actually, um, really came to terms with the idea that if I have an international flight that lasts a whole day and I'm going to arrive uh, in you know, Valencia, uh, I'm going there Saturday and I'm you know, 11 in the evening, then it might actually not be necessary to immediately go to a gym or do a hotel workout and I can actually take a day off. So... Uh, That's just completely counter to my intuitions. And I think there is definitely value in just having the mindset that you are going to work out and especially during contest prep and stuff for many people, it's the opposite, right? They make too many excuses, Um, but there is a point where indeed, like Mike says, you have to just rationally consider the pros and cons of doing another workout or increasing or decreasing the volume because there is a point where it's just uh, too much and might even be counterproductive. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. And yeah, the only additional point I wanted to say is just because the audience might be thinking it is when we're talking about maintenance and maintenance volume can be quite low. We're also talking about maintenance of calorie intake, just because I think people will then be like, oh, is that right? I can diet and not hardly train. Mm-hmm. Yeah, don't do that.
2: <laughs> yeah. If, I mean, if you're going to be in energy deficit uh, or low deficit, then uh, you're you have to do more training than just. Uh, your maintenance because you're basically no longer when you're in energy maintenance your body is just at the point where uh, it needs a very little stimulus not to break down that muscle tissue but when you add an energy deficit there is now a competing stimulus for catabolism so the body has a stimulus to break down tissue and the only consideration it needs is what type of tissue is going to break down and there is especially if you're lean and highly muscular it is very tempting for a body to break down that highly metabolically active muscle tissue instead of the adipose tissue, of which we don't have that much and is just pretty much inert in terms of metabolic activity, um, at least in terms of energy expenditure. So then you definitely have to uh, ramp up the volume a bit, otherwise you are at risk of losing muscle mass.
0: Yeah. Great, and I think, I don't know if many of you want to continue to talk about frequency um, and individualizing that to a certain well, to anyone. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so I'm known as a high-frequency guy, um, which is fairly accurate, I guess. I mean, I'm not... Uh, a lot of people take a look at uh, what some of my clients have achieved or something, and they're like, Mano does full body every day. Uh, and I do that, but not not that many of my clients actually do that. So um, I use high-frequency programming in some clients that I think can tolerate it. And I think by far the best... of uh, if you want to do a high frequency program is how much volume do you have? So you you pretty much have a volume tolerance, your MRV, and then you're looking at, how are you going to distribute that across the week? And if your MRV is like 50 sets, then I think you're gonna have a very hard time fitting that in with any quality on Monday. So in that case, for 50 sets then, and you have seven training days, then I think uh, I would probably put almost anyone on full body training. Because you're talking about seven sets per day, even then. And that's pretty hardcore. So uh, I just don't see any way of fitting that volume in with any good quality in any other setup. But if your MRV is like 15 sets and that person is doing free workouts per week and has a very hard time fitting in a fourth one due to work or logistics or whatever, then probably just stick with free workouts. So... Uh, the, the first consideration is definitely volume. And I think frequency, there aren't really that many other considerations than volume. I think many things actually um, affect volume, and by that also affects uh, the optimal training frequency or just the, the practical distribution of that volume over time, which is what frequency is. And I think there isn't really something that makes someone respond that much better with given frequency,
0: given a certain volume. So, Mike, I don't know if you, you've got a bit of a different perspective, I believe, to frequency, a bit more than just divvying up volume, I think.
1: Yeah, that's like everything Menno said, I think is, is absolutely, uh, I can agree with. I would say that additional consideration for frequency uh, starts to develop from you know, the, the, you know a lot of what he said, it's like, like volume per session. Um, if you do low volumes per session, you need more sessions. If you do high volumes per session, you can get away with lower frequencies and get, I think, a similar result. I think uh, there are some interesting things that happen when you get really, really big and really, really strong or bigger and stronger and more experienced. And on the downside, when you start to accumulate a history of injuries, um, there's a couple of things to that effect. One, is I think as you get all of those things, it can take you take a while to warm up longer than normal. And um, once you're warm, you're fucking golden. But it takes like a fucking while—thirty minutes or something. So if you have a really high frequency program, and it takes you half an hour to warm up for squats, fuck. Maybe you could just do two or three sessions a week as opposed to doing it every day because then you're just pissing away a ton of time is there some efficiency? is there some effectiveness enhancement for more frequent squatting technically yes but there's a huge efficiency downside from that extra warm-up time so like once you are warmed up for squats you might as well hit leg presses because you're cutting the warm-up time on those by a ton but if you don't um You know, if you just do those, you know, squats one day, then leg presses the next and squats one day, then leg presses the next, there's a lot more warm-up time involved there. So I think some body parts, especially for bigger, stronger folks, like once you're already in, let, you know, do some some good damage there, do some good justice to them. Um, Another one is, I think that for a lot of folks, there is some amount of volume that is so much that we start to get into junk volume problems in a single session and also the damage to stimulus ratio starts to become unfavorable for example if someone asked you how do i train my legs every two weeks and still grow the technical answer would be to take their you know mev to mrv take the average sat numbers 15 per week (laughs) double that because it's every two weeks It'd be like, well, you're gonna have to do a workout that's 30 sets every two weeks. Nobody would ever say that because it's fucking insane and it would lead to either suboptimal growth or death. I don't know. Um, I've never done a 30 set quad workout, I don't plan on it. Um, it. You know the super sort of extreme analogy is getting hit by a car once every month and you'll be huge. There's a ton of damage. It's been shown fairly convincingly so far that, and it's theoretically aligned perfectly that a certain amount of damage uh, actually competes with muscle growth, right? You have to make room for uh, adaptation, and if you take all of your adaptive proclivity and piss it away on healing yourself, then there's not much left to actually get you better. So um, uh, case in point, I think uh, if we take that quads every two week analogy and say, well, that's stupid, well, you take a female's cross-sectional area for bicep and the load she's using for curls, it's the same thing if you're saying she should have a bicep day Oh, great. Her MRV is going to be like 40 sets, right? Average average working, average 35 sets per week, right, uh, per program. Go ahead and give her a bicep day, one day a week, 35 fucking bicep sets. What is she going to be lifting by the end of it? Her fucking hands, <laughs> right? Like, that's insane. First of all, it's tons of junk volume. We run into those problems. Second of all, it's um, you're going to cause a lot more damage than you do growth, so to speak, or just way more damage than you need, um so uh, it's it's it, you know it's uh, people say like well as long as the volume is equated the frequency doesn't matter uh per week that becomes close to the truth for many things but not all things per half week it becomes very close to true but technically speaking you can parse it out even further uh, i think if you're female and you want bigger arms training arms any less than any less than 3 sessions a week just doesn't make a whole lot of sense because the amount of uh, sort of fractional synthetic rate you have to – the amount of volume you'd have to train per session to get the fractional synthetic rate up to maximum or really high is just ungodly. And then you're creating so much muscle damage, the FSR is muted to begin with. So hopefully you guys can see where I'm going with this. I think for smaller individuals – for females specifically, um, uh, high-frequency programming uh, or higher frequencies are just plain old better if we just figure out the what I like to call SRA curves, the stimulus recovery adaptation. There's only so far they can reasonably be stretched out and still equate the total area under the curve. You, straight, you can't train legs once a month. Nobody thinks that. You can't train them every two weeks. That's not optimal. So why the fuck are we training female biceps once a week? That's nonsense. And I've actually had multiple clients back in the day when I was coaching You know, females that you know they just train with their boyfriends or something, and they don't want to do that anymore because their results aren't that great. And I'm like, how many days a week do you do shoulders? And they're like, once. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, you guys ever seen a side delt on a female? It's like the size of your pinky. But thinking how much forces are producing, it could heal every 12 hours or something. Like you could probably two a day train side delts for females. They get optimum results. So I think uh, you know, uh, yeah, if you're really big, really strong, I think you may be able to benefit. Fine from once a week hard muscle group training, even though a higher frequency approach might still be better for you. I think you get decent gains like that because it just takes so fucking long to recover that, and you grow. You know your fractional secret rate curve spikes so much that it makes sense. But for females, there's not even the recovery thing. Like you can pound a female with with volume for delts or biceps or even legs sometimes, and like two days later, you're like, "How are you feeling? Super fucked up." And they're like, "I'm completely fine." You're like, "Jesus, like why are we waiting?" You know. There is no reason to wait at that point. It's time to hit it again. So I think that the higher frequency stuff really, really comes to play there where it's like the way we judge it at RP is sort of like, if you did another workout, would your performance be overloading? Yes. Are you currently sore in either connective tissues or muscles? No. It's time to train again, probably. Like it's a probably, it's an average value, but there's a lot of wisdom to that. And I think if you abuse that rule and try to train people who recover fast once a week, Um, that's kind of nuts and sometimes even two times a week is not. So I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, I think one thing uh, that you touched on is uh, really important with the frequency literature. And that is that the vast majority of it is volume equated. And that is never the case in practice. So if you are looking at sets equated, then you are looking at the recent meta-analyses of Rack Knuckles, which even to me are surprisingly clearly in favor of higher frequency training. Uh, you basically found that all the way pretty much linearly, it was like 22% extra growth per training session per muscle group, uh, all the way up to at least six sets. And, uh, from the limited research, there is uh, maybe even seven workouts, which is daily training, which is pretty insane. If you then look at what the difference is between the bro splits and training and muscle group every day. Mm-hmm. But, um, in the literature that's work equated, you're not, talk- you're not just talking about, you know, 20 sets of bicep curls performed on either Monday or spread across the week. You are talking about a given volume of work. And like Mike said, when you do 20 sets of bicep curls on Monday, your last set of biceps curls, you know, when you've done squat curls, preacher curls, barbell curls, and you're gonna do dumbbell curls. What's your work capacity at that point? It's zero. I mean, you're, you're not gonna be able to perform. Um, you're not gonna be able to lift much weight or perform a lot of repetitions with any given weight. So if you spread out those sessions across the week, your total work actually goes up a lot. And it's, it's even it's more, the more exercises you have in a given session. So if you take someone's like bro split with uh, all exercises for a given muscle group all performed on one single day, you spread that out, volume is going to increase very substantially. So uh, that's going to have a very different training effect. Um, not necessarily because of the difference in frequency, but at least it, because of the difference in volume.
0: Mm-hmm. So that's definitely a consideration uh, with frequency. The only question I have uh, to this is uh, are we in agreement that there's a minimum effective volume then for the week, or is there potentially any kind of avenues for minimum effective for a given muscle group for a session? Um, Is there a certain amount of disruption or volume you need to do in one workout for it to be like an actual workout? I definitely think in more advanced uh, folks, the latter is
1: a realistic thing. I think for a lot of beginners, the, The latter is not a realistic thing, a minimum effective training session, because one set is minimum effective for very, very many people. But if you were to look at it this way, if your minimum effective volume is, let's say, 14 sets a week on something, which is not unreasonable for folks that have been training a very long time, if you train one set per session, seven days a week, there's no way around that. You're just not going to be able to hit it. Um, If you train two, you're going to be able to hit it. Um, so basically the, the, the weekly volume ends up being so low that it's just maintenance volume. Like you just need to do more shit and it doesn't even matter how you split it up at that point. It's just the, the fact that it's not enough. So by that avenue, a minimum effective volume per session is definitely reality. Just by that avenue, there's some potential other avenues. Here's one. Um, when we're looking at the causative factors for muscle growth, it's been made pretty clear that cell swelling is definitely one of them. Um. And uh, that, you know, the pump, so to speak, right? The thing is, a beginner athletes can get a really good pump from a set, two sets. A lot of more advanced athletes don't get their best pumps until multiple sets into a program. So I think there, uh, that can play into the hypertrophy equation. And Even if you equate for tension over the course of the week, I think the degree of pumpedness you get uh, can play a role um, so, uh, you know, it, and I think that at least has another avenue of it. Um, another one is the following with more advanced athletes, especially you get a cross set potentiating effect where one set you lift and it feels good and stuff like that. my muscle connections, decent. We know my muscle connection probably plays a role in hypertrophy to some small extent, Um, And the volume was good. And if you went back and rested and came back again, it would be good performance. Um, I think there is an effect where if you do like two or three sets per session, per muscle group, that uh, it it actually goes better every single set. Every set is more stimulative. Um, And because fatigue has an influence on fiber recruitment, the more fatigued you become, the more fibers are recruited uh, that are more fast twitch large motor unit. I think what ends up happening is like on, if you do one set of bench you, and it's two failure, let's say it's just all, all the sets are to failure. Just keep things simple. Um, you end up recruiting the faster Twitch fibers towards the end, which is good. But then the total amount of recruitment time and the total amount of damage or whatever, you forget damage stimulus that they're receiving. is like, eh, it's not that great. If you do that for three sets, it starts to become really good. Not because there's just three more sets, because the the, every, the muscles are that much more fatigued, and the faster twitch fibers have to kick in that much earlier. So basically, if you bias your training to a super duper high frequency, you end up loading your connective tissues a lot. You you put a shitload of weight on the bar, but from a pure hypertrophy standpoint, of that berger myoreps reps kind of situation where you intentionally make yourself tired, so to speak, so that you can get more juice out of the muscles. I mean, no one's advocating that for getting strong as possible. You're strong, you rest right? But on the other hand, there's that factor. And I think the the more volume load situation uh, for beginners and intermediates cancels out all those benefits pretty much. But I think as you get really, really advanced, I think some of them become a little bit more prominent to where I could see basically making an argument that if someone was like, you know, 100 kilos, super strong, lean, um, having them train something like their back uh, or their chest or their quads um, any more than like Four sessions a week each session either becomes very pulsatile like some sessions are very hard some are very not hard which begs the question of why do you even have the easy one at all um or all the sessions tend to just be like eh, like you asked them, how are the pumps They're like nah, you know how is your muscle activation like eh, like i feel like i'm warming up and then i kind of do stuff and then i have to leave um am i confident that that is exactly the way it works no um, but, um, I'm confident that that a- accounts for, uh, much of the variance that we see in real world programming versus theoretical programming. And, and probably why a lot of bodybuilders stick to the lower frequency range when they're jacked. The problem is when everyone does that, uh, you know, they always do low frequency, they get shitty, shitty, shitty results. And the results sort of kind of get better as they get uh, bigger and stronger to that freaky end. Um, so I think that might explain it to some extent also from, from Greg Knuckles analysis, it was shown, I believe, that the more experience somebody had, I think the stronger they were, Mate, was that one of them? The more experience, the larger the body part, so to speak, upper body versus legs, and I think the gender effect pointed in the direction of less of an advantage for higher frequency for all of those. So females get more out of high frequency than males. Uh, uh, bigger muscles like the legs get a little bit less out of high frequency than upper body muscles and then people with experience get a little bit less out of uh, high frequency than people with with less experience which to me makes a whole lot of sense and i think you know the experienced people in those studies are one to three years of training i think if you take like seven years of training or ten years of training i think there's legitimate block-offs too you can get great results with seven days a week training but if you want your super best results i think maybe some of the muscle groups either you you can totally train seven days a week it's just not all of them are going to be really hard days but if you ask the question of how many true overloading sessions i think it starts to look like maybe three and four maybe two for really big body parts and if your chest is marcus rules where he's inclining 230 kilos for reps I think for him, honestly, one day a week of chest is like, it's all the fucking check marks and there's no way to train chest remotely hard again because it just takes that long to heal. So there, there's my rant on the subject.
0: Menor, any thoughts on that?
2: Yeah. Uh, let me have two, uh, two things. Uh, one is the, um, the original question, which is... Um,
0: um, what was the original question is there a minimum effective volume uh, in a given right volume? right per week or per session
2: um so if you had asked me this two years ago maybe longer then i would have definitely said per session based on the literature on muscle protein synthesis, which is quite convincing that muscle protein synthesis just doesn't last that long after uh, workouts there's actually one workout uh, study in, uh, in bodybuilders that does like nine sets of bicep work to failure. And then 33 hours later, it's pretty much at, uh, at baseline muscle protein synthesis. So there is some debate about this, most literature being about mixed total. So mixed is basically the same as total muscle protein synthesis, and it's not uh, protein fraction specific. And what we're really mostly concerned with for muscle growth is myofibular protein synthesis, but mixed protein synthesis includes myofibular protein synthesis. So assuming measurement validity, you would expect that as mixed protein synthesis reaches baseline, myofibular protein synthesis must also have reached baseline. But there is actually one study where this is not the case. So there's where they found that myofurbia protein synthesis is still elevated but mixed protein synthesis is no longer elevated now that has to be some measurement error that the specific ratios are in um nice shot <laughs> that the specific okay. ratios uh, are within measurement error otherwise just that's just not possible but anyway Um, Based on that, you would expect that there is a minimum volume per session and frequency is really important. But over the recent years, uh, there have been a lot of studies that show even very advanced lifters uh, can make remarkably good progression with just one workout per week. So those suggest that, uh, or they strongly show that volume is the primary determinant of growth, not training frequency. Um, And even uh, suggest very strongly that as long as you're doing a volume per session, you can have very effective workouts with just one session per week. And and in terms of maintenance, I think definitely almost anyone can maintain training a muscle group just once a week. Um, Now, probably at that point, you are at the point that you might actually be losing a little muscle mass just before the next training session, before that muscle group, but (laughs) you probably want to turn off the camera.
1: (laughs) Sorry, is that that my dick show or are we good? (laughs) it was a nice crotch shot thank you <laughs> but um
2: <laughs> what was i saying <laughs> the one. Yeah, so the, the answer to that is um in practical terms yeah one session per week you can think of maintenance as like a weekly requirement because it's just so low and it's definitely possible with one session per week um the other point um which mike touched on which is really interesting uh, going back to individualization and the rule of who responds best to higher frequencies, um, and the Greg's meta-analysis found uh, these three po- three points, and they were ac- supported as well by an- another meta-analysis on strength. They did not study hypertrophy, unfortunately, but uh, basically finding that the lower body does not seem to respond as well as the upper body to increased frequency. It's Very tricky, I think, to um, uh, whether that depends on muscle size, maybe. I mean, most studies are about the quads versus the biceps or maybe the triceps. Um, So it could be muscle size, but it might also have something to do inherently with the fact that you're walking on your lower body. Uh, There is definitely something going on there. There's also studies showing differences in volume response. Some studies actually suggest that the lower body needs more volume. So, but there have also been two studies that um, tried to replicate that finding and found no difference between the upper and the lower body. So it's very difficult to say if, you know, if that's something that's truly there in a the meta-analysis or if it's uh, confounded by study design because you're, you're basically aggregating a lot of different data, of a lot of different studies with different variables. And it's very likely that in, when you do this, uh, you end up invariably having uh, differences between the frequencies that you did not intend. Like Most studies that have a frequency of twice a week in train lifters will use something like an upper-lower split, whereas most frequencies that, uh, or studies that have like a three-times frequency, will be full-body. So there, you have the difference in that you're doing full-body workouts three times a week versus upper-body upper-lower splits, uh, which have actually an extra training day, for example, and which... Aren't full body, they are splits. So you have these differences between the frequencies of two and three. And you can have many more differences like that uh, in the literature as well if you're looking at like super high frequencies. The only studies that have really looked at super high frequencies, they're pretty much all in very trained individuals. So it's also the second point like, uh, do trained individuals respond less well to a higher frequency? Um, Theoretically, you would expect that trained individuals respond better, I think, because they have a shorter anabolic window, less uh, the duration of muscle protein synthesis is shorter than in untrained individuals. They recover faster, they don't uh, suffer as much muscle damage, and um, they recover from metabolic stress better. So based on these factors, you would think they actually need that very frequent muscle stimulation. But the meta indeed suggested that the trend is in the opposite direction. Now, if you actually look at all the independent the um, the individual studies, this trend definitely does not emerge because if you are looking at untrained individuals, there is one one study that finds a significant benefit of higher training frequencies than just once a week. There are like eight studies that look at one versus three frequencies. No, no difference. Now they show up in the meta, but you know when a meta shows something is significant, but you're looking at uh, seven versus one split or something, uh, and that one study was Ochi et al. from 2018, it was only strength and no difference between muscle growth. So is there really something there then? There might be a trend, it might be statistical power and the meta-analysis picked it up better, but I don't know, when you're looking at trained individuals, there are like five studies or something that find significant benefits, and uh, or maybe it's it's probably three or four that find significant benefits, but a lot that find trends. So. Uh, if you're just looking at trained and untrained individuals, you just look at all the individual studies, then I think the trend is definitely in favor of the more trained in, more trained group. But if you look at the meta that aggregates everything, it seems to be that the response is diminished in the trained versus uh, untrained individuals. We had the same thing in our meta-analysis on protein intake, which actually found that uh, trained individuals respond better to increased protein intake. Now, theoretically, you would expect that they respond more poorly because they have less protein breakdown and less protein synthesis and several studies have indeed found that protein needs decrease along with training age. So there we also have this uh, discrepancy in results and that the method suggests as you get more advanced you need more protein but the individual literature and the mechanistic literature that actually looks at cause and effect suggests that over time your protein needs decrease somewhat at least. uh, I'm very skeptical of placing too much um, faith in these specific findings of the meta, um, and that there might not be anything there, and that there is contrasting um, literature. The one on gender, though, there is gender is pretty much uncontested, I think. Uh, pretty much every all the literature points in the direction of women just tolerating more volume, more frequency, uh, shorter rest periods, more everything, pretty much.
1: Except more intensity, intensity, too.
2: Well, men. Well,
1: they can survive more intensity and not necessarily benefit from it but the any intensity that a woman can survive relative intensity a, a male will uh, may, may not survive uh, whether or not they benefit more is a little bit up for a right
2: yeah so it's um more stress pretty much from the intensity mm-hmm. and um so that one's pretty uncontested uh, muscle groups and training status very contentious i think um so that's why overall uh, I think it's more—it's mainly just um, volume, and um, the term was the optimal frequency. But definitely, very interesting um, to see more research coming out on this because I think we're we're getting to that level now in the literature. Uh, we have people keep pumping out studies on different training frequencies. It's still, you know, it's still contested—is there a benefit or not? So it's great, but uh, I think it would be nice to move on to the level where we're not just comparing different frequencies, but we're going to look at who responds better to those frequencies.
0: Perfect. Yeah. No, very interesting. I guess for the listeners, the biggest take home is consider your total volume. And then there's quite a lot of frequencies that work pretty well for most people. There's likely a practical implication of how many times you get to the gym. What's a realistic workout for you? Are you super strong? You probably don't want to be squatting every single day. Um, so, no, brilliantly covered guys. And um, the next one, if we're good to go on that. And I don't know if, Mike, you want to start off with um, talking about rep ranges. Uh, and kind of individualization of rep ranges and what you might want to do with that in the context of hypertrophy? Totally. So we can leave the
1: discussion of periodization maybe for a later date or maybe for never, because there inevitably a question arises well, maybe you should take specific periods to address certain repetition ranges and then put some on the back burner, or so on and so forth. But let's just say we're designing one mesocycle, we want the most growth that we can out of that one mesocycle. And let's say we're training a whole body and we have sort of the power to train as much as we can recover from or need to. So then the the question there becomes where should we train with rep range? Now we can, you know, delineate uh, anything less than five reps per set is probably a bad use of your time. Uh, Fatigue to stimulus ratio sucks. And then the, uh, anything less than uh, or less weight more reps than 30 reps per set this is a difficult little more, more uphill argument um you know 30 to 40 percent of one rm kind of uh starts to get a little funky and some studies show significantly less growth from from less uh, occlusion might be able to change that somewhat so on and so forth but i think um it's not unreasonable to see a spectrum of rep ranges between five reps per set ish and 30 reps per set ish as being kind of the golden zone as a much bigger zone than people have thought uh, prior. Um, and I think it's important if you want maximum hypertrophy to kind of attack all the general areas in that zone, because they're all going to probably represent like Meadow had cited the research earlier, different fiber types, uh, at least in different, you know, other growth proclivities for muscle fibers, a design, our uh, architecture so on and so forth. So um If we look at it like that, then we have to train in all the rep ranges. The next question for individual difference comes up in, if you're splitting your, let's make it simple and say weekly workload, what percent of your work do you allocate towards what ranges? And I think there we have to go back to, again, what Menno had said of who responds best to what. And I think I would like to hear Menno's um, thoughts on how to determine that more from from, uh, data and from measurement. Uh, I would like to sub, uh, sort of put forward a real-world, bullshit, educated guess guide as to how to do this in, in training. It's not the way to do it, it's just one. I'll say this. If you are training for hypertrophy, there's only for hypertrophy. If you are training a muscle with very heavy weights or certain weights that you consider heavy, closer to the five-rep range, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that low, And you're feeling like your joints hurt, your sort of tendons hurt. You feel like the move is an act of like, I'm just trying not to get killed. And after the set or even multiple sets, people are like, hey, how did that feel? Like, I don't know. I didn't die. So that was good. It was painful and uncomfortable. And they're like, do you feel it in the muscle? And you're like, dude, I don't even know. I don't No pump, nothing and the only thing that happens is like the next day you wake up in bed and it's not that meaty soreness in the belly of the muscle, it's like a peripheral pain of like, ow, 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 like I can't get out of bed, my joints hurt. That's probably too heavy for that muscle to hypertrophy much. On the other hand, if you are doing on the higher end of repetitions and you feel like you're just moving weight around, and instead of getting a good pump and getting a feel in the muscle, you just feel tired. And the more sets you do, the more tired you feel. That might be for that muscle, um, not the most productive way to train. So I would say that that leaves us with ranges where you should do most of your training that gives you a, a, a really good pump, at least some kind of feel and a sensation, a mind muscle connection that you're actually Doing something with that muscle and it's getting a hit. It's something that you know we can describe in verbal terms, but people kind of know. Like you show someone how to high bar deep squat for the first time, and maybe doing half squats sumo, and they're like, "I can never feel my quads." You do a set of twelve on the high bar, and you look at them. You're like, "What do you think?" They're like, "Fuck." Be like, "Do you feel the quads?" And you're asking it rhetorically, and they're like, "Dude, fuck off. I am not. A, I don't even know what's going on." Like hell yeah. Like it's all like all of my life sins just went straight to my quads and I'm paying for them now. Right. And it's not the knees, it's not the hips, it's the quads. So that's kind of like a real layman's way of being like, what's a productive way for me to do this. Let me give you just a quick example and I'll let uh, uh, Menno in on this. So uh, for me, my hamstrings tend to be probably more fast twitch than not If I do sets, um, like leg curls There's a little bit of exception because it actually doesn't take a lot of time to do a leg curl. Um, So my fast twitch fibers can still get a lot of the work done even with higher reps, but like with good mornings or stiff-legged deadlifts, great exercises, by the way. If I do sets of like 14 or 15 or something, I just feel tired. I don't get super sore from that. Um, Not a big pump in the hamstrings, not a feel. I'm just like, "Ah." if I do sets of or I'm like, oh, everything hurts and I can't get fucking connected to shit. I don't even know what I'm training. I think my tendons. But if I do like sets of six to, to ten, it's beautiful. Like I am just all hamstring all the time. It feels great. Does that mean that I can only train hamstrings with sets of six to ten? No. I think that if I'm trying to get or again, in one mesocycle optimal hypertrophy, I think I can start the workout or the uh, within the week do a little bit of my work in the five to seven rep range, maybe like even as little as a set or two, maybe 60 to 70% of my work in that six to 12 range or whatever that's real productive for me. And maybe a couple of drop sets at some point, maybe 20 or 30% of the work, maybe less in the higher rep ranges, 15, 20, and maybe leave the 30 shit out completely or do like one set of that. So there's gonna be a distribution and kind of like a normalized curve among your best rep ranges. And for some people that curve will be flatter for some people it will be more spiky. But I think that's how you should basically figure out what to train um, if you're just going by field. But I think for the physiological realities that reflect that, I think Menno has a whole lot more uh, insightful shit to say, And maybe he can correct me on anything I said.
2: Yeah, I think uh, I use uh, uh, two factors that I think are at the, the center of this. Are, uh, one is the uh, difference in strain on connective versus muscular tissue. So uh, like you said, if you're doing very heavy weights in general, um, as you go higher in intensity and lower in, or higher in repetitions and lower in intensity, so you're doing, say, sets of 30 and sets of sets of five, uh, this greatly decreases the strain on connective tissues, notably your tendons. And um, the strain on muscle fibers is still very high as long as you're taking a set close to failure. So, uh, in general, with the higher in reps you go, uh, the more you alleviate the stress on your tendons uh, while preserving the stress for muscle growth. So definitely for rehab and prehab, uh, that's very uh, important. And prehab is when you're an advanced trainee and you are pushing your volume up to the limits of what your body can tolerate. You're pretty much prehabbing nonstop. Um, I think that is one of the most underrated aspects of being an advanced trainee uh, is that you're always pushing up against the boundary of injury uh, if you're not careful. So um, there is definitely a big argument there to uh, use more uh, higher rep work if you're doing a lot of volume and leave the the, the high intensity work bit for uh, when it's really necessary uh, and do pretty much the minimum you need to uh, have good strength development. Cause you, you do need progressive overload and strength development probably. Um, if you're not gaining any strength anymore, you're, you're be rest assured that you're probably, or you can actually rest assured that you're also not getting any muscle mass. So you can gain strength, but not muscle mass, but because of neural adaptations, but when you're not getting any strength, you are almost certainly not getting any muscle mass. Uh, the only possible way, uh, that would be possible if you somehow had negative neural adaptations, but that's pretty much impossible. If you are performing the movements that you are testing, um, so that's one consideration. The other consideration is um, inherently differences in muscle architecture, like muscle fiber type, uh, which I became known for as the you know, my muscle-specific hypertrophy method. Um, a lot of people have wrongly interpreted, and in that I, respo- I uh, use higher or lower reps for certain muscle groups, but. Uh, I've never actually just used arbitrary numbers. I have always used an intensity system. So rather than prescribe, say, sets of eight, I will prescribe an intensity of 80% and a proximity to failure. And I think the nice thing there, most research actually does this as well, but many coaches don't, is that you are uh, auto-regulating the volume based on uh, that person's or that muscle's, more specifically, uh, strength. So... We have research pointing uh, the Coglu study that I mentioned, in that people with the uh, more sprinter ACE genes, uh, which correlates with more fast-twitch muscle fibers, don't seem to respond as well to higher volumes. And there's also a recent study, which is actually really cool, um, from this month, I think even, that um, there's a correlation between uh, fast-twitch uh, fiber type composition, having more fast-twitch fibers, and the Neuromuscular fatigue in the days after high rep work. In other words, it suggests that if you have very fast twitch muscle fibers and you're doing high rep work, you're going to be fatigued as hell in the next days. So that's very much in line with what coaches have been, uh, especially coaches of sprinters, have uh, known for a very long time. Uh, David Epstein wrote a very nice uh, chapter on this in uh, his book, The Sports Gene where uh, he discusses research that sprinters who are famous for having extremely fast muscle fibers um, respond extremely poorly often to higher volumes. So they just get injured, uh, they don't recover well from it, and it doesn't really seem to add any training stimulus. So, you know, that's speaking in extremes, and these are the genetic outliers, but there is probably somewhat of a trend there. And I think there are many more factors, not just muscle fiber type. Muscle fiber type is just the one we know uh, most of, you know, uh, capillary density, some research suggests that capillary density is actually more um, influential in determining how many reps
1: you can do at a given intensity. Yeah. Capillary density relates to fiber type incredibly well, just to point that out. Um, mm-hmm. in, in part, the fiber type uh, can uh, can have a huge relationship to capillary density and fiber types, not only capillary density, fiber types differ by myoglobin content. So once you get the oxygen to them, fiber fast fiber types are just not good at getting it anywhere within the muscle fiber, whereas slower fiber types are very good at getting it. And so all very interrelated.
2: Yeah, exactly. So I think, you know, it's not just muscle fiber type. There's many more factors, but muscle fiber type is just one we have a lot of information on, and like you say, most of things correlate with it. So it's a nice uh, – it's like a, the, the prototypical uh, factor of um, – something that is actually influenced by many more factors. And I think based on these factors, uh, it's useful to uh, use intensities uh, rather than weight, especially when you're going up to the, the ends of the, the hypertrophy zone, which is indeed like, I usually say 3 to 30 reps, but probably five, 3 to 5 to around 30 reps. Because if you program, say, 20 or 30 reps for someone, um And that person is very fast switch then or that muscle group more specifically then that person may actually not be or that person may actually need to go below say 30 percent of one rm to be able to do 30 reps because they are so fast switch so they may actually be working below the ideal hypertrophy zone and other people may actually uh, only be able to do with like 85 percent of one rm which is like the bottom end of the hypertrophy zone, probably, they may only be able to do three reps. And uh, there was actually a recent study as well, that, uh, which is really interesting, uh, also I think this month, that looked at a tempo differences and uh, time under tension, and they found that as long as the load is high enough and the time under tension is high enough, just one to two reps per set can suffice for uh, nearly or the same muscle growth as doing like sets of 10. With a normal tempo. And their, their tempo in the one, two, one or two repetition group was actually like a 30 second concentric and then like a double 30 second eccentric. So it was like 90 second reps, which was like even Mike Manser would call that super slow. Um, but uh, it sufficed that as long as the load and the time of repetition are enough, uh, that low uh, amount of repetitions can suffice. So, you know, in practice, most no, nobody does this but uh, it's interesting. So uh, I think there is something to be said to to using intensities, and uh, I think you can also get an idea of this, which I do with all my clients um, in first test workouts. I have them determine something close to their 1RM and then have them uh, reduce the weight a lot. There's another recent study that finds that the more you reduce the weight, the better you get an idea of the muscle's mechanical properties. So you have them do ideally a 1RM, and then with like, 50% Fifty percent or forty percent of one RM, like literally the ends, uh, like their maximal uh, maximal strength one RM, and like the low end of the hypertrophy zone, ideally. And you know, it doesn't work for squats. You have to be a bit more moderate there. Um, but ideally, you look at the far extremes of um, the strength endurance spectrum that is relevant to be to use in practice, and then you see how many reps they can do with each, and how big the difference is. You know, for one RM, it's going to be one rep, but three RM. Um, you have to convert that to 1RM. You can basically estimate, um, you can do an estimated 1RM based on the two ends, see which is higher and that is where they should be stronger. You can also look at differences between muscle groups and stuff to see where, basically get an idea of which intensity they are relatively stronger at than average. And probably that's also where they're going to respond best. So if Uh, Like Mike says, you're doing like super low rep work and it's just, it's not working out at all. And super high rep work also doesn't work, but you feel super great. And probably your performance is also best in like the six to 10 rep zone. Now that is indeed probably like the zone you're going to respond best to. Now in aggregate, most research finds that it doesn't matter. You know, if you lump all the individuals together, anything between like five and 30 reps roughly is going to result in the same growth. But I think there is something there to... uh, to say that some individuals respond better to these intensifiers, and i think it
1: corresponds to what they are strongest at i'd like to point out a, a big drawback of such research uh, by the way super super awesome stuff that you said minnow um that kind of research when you take a study of like say 12 weeks and you compare two groups one that does sets of five one that does sets of 25 and you equate the volume you do in fact get roughly the same amount of growth now The next question becomes is, you know, was the group of five maximizing slower Twitch fiber growth? And the answer is almost certainly they weren't, but they were maximizing faster Twitch fiber growth. And then you asked the uh, same question for the other group. And, you know, with a 25 rep group probably did a good job at slower Twitch fiber growth, but not the best job at faster Twitch fiber growth. So you're basically getting sort of a Venn diagram situation um where perhaps a bayesian analysis Uh, 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 i tried anyway so um you basically get the situation where you're you're getting 2 suboptima, and you are uh basically saying okay well yeah you know both are equal but both may be equivalently not the best now there's a recent study that i think either schoenfeld did or he summarized where they had a more spectrum of rep ranges approach and actually resulted in considerably more growth than either uh, polarity by itself. Now, is it the answer to say that uh, that amount of growth could sort of peter out and over 12 weeks or 16 weeks, it would be a sort of all a wash? Is the approach to do a periodized one where you do lower-ish reps for a couple of months and then higher-ish reps for a couple of months? One goes to maintenance, one goes to you know, uh, actual uh, improvement and then flip-flop them? I don't know. But I think that those studies that compare the, you know, very, very big rep range differences and just one rep here, one rep here and compare, I think they're missing out on potentially higher growth from including more diverse rep ranges um, as at least that one study with Schoenfeld showed. But I think there's just a very good theoretical basis for thinking that. So I don't want people to go too far in those studies and think, oh, I could just do sets of five and it covers all in bases. Like, that's a really good way to go. But I think doing both, whether you do them both split by two or three months, or whether you do them in the same session or the same week, I think some justice to those broader intensity ranges is good, which I kind of describe sort of the, the distribution, like most of your work should occur to where your muscles are best performing, fiber type, so on. But I think some spreading out of the work to the shit you don't even like to do is good just to dot the I's and T's. I think that specifically benefits people who are more advanced. Like if you're an advanced bodybuilder and you want to be on stage, I think... You know, Who gives a shit if you grow these little slow twitch muscle fibers and add like 2% total to your appearance? Well, you do, because 2% can be the difference between first place and fifth place. So so I think there's still a really good uh, description there You know, uh, for that sort of thing. What do you guys think about that?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the individual literature, on, like the effect of training intensity on muscle fiber type specific growth is uh, very, very conflicted. I think there was early Russian research, which was quite clear that uh, said like, if you do super high reps, you're going to grow the type one fibers more. If you're going to do super low rep work, you're going to grow the type two fibers more. Um, many individual studies, uh, Western studies have not found this, but like, even like high rep work and they have done biopsies, like type one and two fibers get the same growth. Uh, but a meta-analysis that I'm not sure if it's published yet already, actually, uh, by Brad Schoenfeld, uh, or at least he was a uh, co-author, uh found that there is a trend at like 90% and 30% to get fiber type specific growth. So um, there's there's definitely uh, an argument there for uh, periodization of uh, rep ranges and uh, undulating or at, least an inclu-
1: at least an inclusion of all of them. However you go about including them, mm-hmm. you could undulate them through the week, you do them in the same workout, you could do them three months apart. But I think it's just like, if you've been training for years, sets of eight, and you've gotten great results, and someone's like, have you ever tried sets of 15? You're like, why the fuck would I do that? Like, there might be a, a good reason, a good reason, not a great reason, to maybe try some of that shit some of the time.
2: Yeah, definitely, I agree. And um, I think that the, most, the best research we have on this, what's most relevant uh, for practical purposes, is that uh, if you look at uh, research review by Fry, um, it's been a long time ago, still uncontested, I think, that looked at uh, bodybuilders, powerlifters, and weightlifters, and they found that the bodybuilders were much bigger. You know, no surprise there. And that was mostly because the powerlifters and the weightlifters had a lot of growth in the type two fibers, but the bodybuilders also had a lot of growth in the type one fibers. So you're gonna get um, very strong, and um, you you can make very good progression if all you're doing is heavy training. But if you want maximum muscle growth, you're probably also gonna have to spend some time on the type one fibers. And um, I think the way to go about that is uh, higher rep work and higher volumes. So um, I think there is definitely a, a good argument to be made for that.
0: Hi guys, hope you enjoyed that first part of individualization with Mike and Menno going over some terrific things and you've got much more content to enjoy in five episodes. So this will be episode 130 for the second part. Stay tuned till then. Cheers, guys, and revive stronger.